Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We are back with Bible Basics, even though we're going to rename it something new starting today. We just came up with this five minutes ago. <laughs> Jeff Verdorn is my guest. And remember how we talked about learning the basics of the Bible? And we were going to do Bible 101, and then today is Bible 201. But we're going to call this series Bible Bible. I mean, it worked for Pizza Pizza, didn't it? Pizza Pizza. <laughs> so Bible Bible. That's what we're going to talk about. Over the next uh, four more sessions, we're going to continue our discussion. We did Bible uh, 101 last time, Bible Bible 101. (laughs) So let's maybe do a recap for those who might have missed that, and then we'll get into Bible Bible 201. Perfect. Well, hi, Bill. Hey, Jeff. Um, Yeah, I thought where we would start, because this is kind of our series, you know, we're going to do 101, 201, 301. 401, and then are we are we going to have a graduation yep, party when we're going to... Yep, yeah, we're doing we're all going, that. Okay, good. Yep. Uh, but I just thought we'd start with a little review of what we covered last time. Um, we looked at some Bible facts last time. We talked about that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, that there's 66 books in the Bible. But we looked at this issue, and we centered on whether or not the Bible is actually from God. Is it the Word of God? Well, the Bible says it is God's Word. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God. Second Peter 1 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we talked a little bit about the inspiration of Scripture, that even though there's 40-some-plus authors of the book who penned the words, there's really one voice, there's really one author of Scripture, and that is God. But then we ask this question, well, how do we know it's from God? Now, this is really kind of the fundamental question of all of the attacks that attack the Scripture. And, and at the end of this hour, I hope to cover some of the common uh, attacks on Scripture. Uh, but what are the internal evidences that we can point to that show that the Bible was actually written by God, that it came from God? Well, one is that it's self-proclaiming. He proclaims himself the author. And I know this is circular reasoning to an extent, but when you pick up a book, one of the first things you do is look to see who wrote the book, who's mm-hmm. the author of the book. God says that he is the author. We looked at the unity of Scripture that even though there's 66 books in the Bible written by 40-some authors over 1,500 years in three different languages, it has one consistent theme from beginning to end, and there are no contradictions in Mm. Scripture. That's unbelievable over that much time span. It is. I don't think you could gather a group of people today and do that. No. Over the course of that much time? Yeah, 1,500 years. So we now last time we didn't talk about any of those contradictions. I thought I'd, I'd just mention a couple because there's there's all these Internet sites that you can go to that list hundreds and hundreds of contradictions in the Bible and they can be overwhelming. So but with study, you can easily explain these contradictions. So one, for example, this is one of my favorite ones in Acts chapter seven. It says that Israel was enslaved and mistreated in Egypt 
for 400 years. But in Exodus 12, it says, Now the length of the time that Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of that 430 years, to the very day, the Lord's divisions left Egypt. So you have one place that says that they were in Egypt 400 years. You have another place that says 430 years. That's a 30-year difference. Well, if you look at the passages a little closer, you'll notice that in the Acts reference, it says that they were enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. The other one says that they were in Egypt for 430 years. Well, what's the story? Remember the story, uh, Joseph saves the nation of Egypt from the seven years of famine with the seven years of plenty. His family moves to Egypt. They get the best land in Goshen. They are fruitful. They multiply. And then Exodus says that some time later, a new king arrived to whom Joseph meant nothing, Exodus 1.8, and he came to power in Egypt, who then enslaved the Israelites because their numbers had gotten so great. Well, I'm guessing that was 30 years where they were fruitful and multiplied before the next king came along and enslaved and mistreated them. There you reconcile that apparent discrepancy, which isn't really a contradiction at all. Um, So there's lists of these out on the Internet, hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. One of the other ones that is really neat is was Salmon, Salmon, was David (laughs) uh, the seventh son of Jesse, or was he the eighth son of Jesse? Well, if you recall the story, when Samuel came to Jesse, he was shown seven sons, and then the eighth son, David, came along, and he said, oh, this is the king. But years later, in Second Chronicles, in the genealogy of Jesse's sons, it says that David is the seventh son. Hmm, an apparent contradiction. Well, one easy explanation is that one of the sons in the, in between those two periods passed away, not leaving any descendants, and therefore he wouldn't be listed in the genealogy of the descendancies of Jesse's children. All right? So there are many of these, but with a little bit of study, all of them can be answered. And then we looked at one of the last evidences, internal evidence. is probably the biggest one of all, and that is fulfilled prophecy in Scripture. No other book in the entire world, has predictions of events that will happen in the future that have come to pass exactly as God says. So of Christ, for example, we are told in the Old Testament where he would be born in Bethlehem, what he would do, he would bring good news to the poor, who he would be, Emmanuel, God with us, why he came, that God would lay on him the iniquity of us all, when he would come, on Palm Sunday, which is the Daniel 9 prophecy that we talked about briefly a couple weeks ago. There are literally hundreds of passages about people and places and events that have come true exactly as God said they would. And Tim Mohey once said that fulfilled prophecy is God's fingerprints on the authorship of Scripture. We also looked at some biblical facts and trivia. You actually did pretty good on my trivia quiz. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you did. And so this time I thought I'd mention a couple presidential quotes on the Bible because this is some of our history that I really think our nation is forgetting some of our historical, you know, we had a group of Christian men that really, truly understood Scripture who founded this country. So let me read a couple of them. George Washington said this, quote, 
it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Andrew Jackson said the Bible is the rock upon which this republic rests. And Theodore Roosevelt said a thorough knowledge of the Bible is with more is worth more than a college education. And then finally, we talked about the New England Primer. I understand you got several requests for this alphabet that yeah, I yeah. mentioned. It's a really cool alphabet. It was the only textbook in our country for literally about 100 years or more where most, especially rural areas, that's the small little book called the New England Primer was all they had. That's how most Americans learned their alphabet. And so it says things like, A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And C, was Christ crucified for sinners died. B, by the way, is thy life to mend, this book attend, mm. the word of God. H says, my book and heart must never part. And then, of course, my favorite is Z, Zacchaeus climbed the tree, his Lord to see. Right? <laughs> I love that. Every single letter of this alphabet was a, a, a biblical truth, a biblical reference, and that's uh, how we learned the alphabet. Compare that really quick. I remember seeing a sign a few years ago in an elementary school in my hometown. We were at an event, and they had all these words underneath each of the letters, and they were things like witchcraft and Wicca and homosexuality and, you know, lesbian and all these different words and all these different letters. And it's like, oh, what a difference, you know, a couple hundred years would make, huh? This week I wanted to focus on some of the external Evidences. So, so now we're moving into Bible 2.0. We're now 201. 201, yes. 201. Bible 201. So yes, this is uh, the start of Bible 201. So th- we looked at internal evidences. Now I want to look at external evidences. So one of the first categories of external evidence is s- the Bible displays scientific knowledge before mankind ever even discovers it. Okay. Now, the Bible is not a scientific book, uh, but it has some scientific truths that are listed hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before man discovered it. All right. What are some of those things? Well, the spherical shape of the earth is mentioned in Isaiah, that the circle of the earth. Well, it wasn't until hundreds of years later that Aristotle concluded that the earth was round. And, but the Bible declares it hundreds of years before that. God says that in Job that the earth is suspended by nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing. Now, Job was probably uh, written about 2000 BC. And for the next 3000 years, most societies on earth believe that something held up the earth in some way. So if you were a Hindu, you believe the earth rested on the back of four elephants, for example. If you believed in Greek mythology, you have a picture of Atlas holding up the earth on his shoulders. If you were an Egyptian, you believe the earth rested on four pillars. Um, it wasn't until the 1500s that Copernicus came along and proposed that the earth orbited the sun and wasn't held up by nothing. That's 3,500 years after God told us that the earth was suspended by nothing. God says in Genesis, Genesis, count the stars if indeed you can. Well, many have tried to count the stars. And in about the, in the second century AD, Ptolemy categorized 1,022 stars. That's what he saw. 
Well, Galileo, with the invention of the telescope, found 30,000 stars. Today, the estimate is 10 trillion <laughs> times 100 billion, which is 100 billion galaxies times 10 trillion stars. In, or no, 10 trillion galaxies times 100 billion stars in each galaxy is actually 1 times 10 to the 24th number of stars. So that's mankind's current estimate of the number of stars. Hmm. One very fascinating to me, because I love to sail, I love boating, is the dimensions of Noah's Ark. The dimensions of Noah's Ark are listed as 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 3 cubits. Okay? 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 3 cubits high. Well, it was in the 1800s that a British uh, gentleman designed the perfect ocean-going large vessel. You know what the dimensions he discovered were the perfect dimensions for that large ocean-going vessel? 300 by 50 by 3, just like Noah's Ark. Mm. So several thousands of years before this British gentleman discovered this, God gave us that information. Mm. Cool. I think we should take a break. I can picture Noah screaming to his kids, we need more gopher wood. He probably said that a lot over 120 years. All Go right, for more Jeff, wood. Jeff Ferdorn is my guest. We're continuing our study on the Bible. Now, we, we're going to take it for at least four more sessions, and you can identify this online if you do a search for these uh, episodes just by typing in Bible, Bible, because we're going to call it that as you are uh, learning from Bible 1.0. Today is, is 2. Two, 101. 101. 201. 201, yeah a long day. Jeff, I'm tired. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break. Be right back. The ways they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you never win. You never win. Walk-up music belongs to Jeff Verdorn, my guest, as today we are continuing our study of the Bible. If you are new to the faith and you wanted to get a, a, a nice understanding of God's Word, we're gonna, we've are gonna. we been doing this uh, last time we were together. We started it, and now we are uh, continuing it. We're going to be doing this for at least three or four more times together. So you'll be able to uh, study this all at once, if you like, or a week at a time, which is kind of what we're doing right now. We are at, at uh, the Bible two point two oh one. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> You got that stuck in your I, brain. It's today, stuck in my head. I can't two oh one. Two oh one, that's all. Think college. Go back to college, you know. It's yeah. like history one oh one, history two. Yeah, the seven longest years of my life. Why are we bringing that up, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's continue on some of these great um illustrations on uh, science. Yeah, so scientific knowledge that's displayed in Scripture prior to mankind actually discovering it. Things like springs of the sea. In Job 38, it talks about the springs of the depths of the sea. Well, no man would have known about that there were springs on the bottom of the ocean at that time. The existence of ocean currents, Psalm 8, talks about the pathways in the sea. Well, once again, we didn't discover ocean dynamics and currents and stuff until hundreds of years later. 
One of the coolest one that actually has some rather fascinating history is part of the law given to the Israelites in Leviticus 12 through 14 is is a bunch of laws concerning health and sanitation and sickness. And the bottom line is that Israel was instructed that when someone got sick, they were to put the sick person outside the camp. Well, that is the instructions on quarantining, which is uh, a pretty common and fundamental uh, technique now to control uh, infectious diseases. And and I just have to mention this, by the way. This last pandemic in all of mankind's history, this is the first time in history where we've quarantined healthy people instead of sick people when we shut down everything. So there's my little commentary for the day. But during the Black Plague, this is fascinating history. They don't remember mankind didn't have any idea of viruses and bacteria and how infectious diseases spread and so on and so forth. And it was the deadliest pandemic in world history and uh, this black death. Um, And the world noticed that the Jews were not as susceptible to the plague as everybody else. And some actually got suspicious and started persecuting the Jews because they thought somehow the Jewish people were involved or contributed to it to some way. But the Jews were practicing their law. The sick people were being put outside the camp. And in fact, that process of both ceremonial cleansing and putting the sick people outside the camp was ended up being adopted by many others in Europe. And it actually some contribute that say that was a contributing factor to ending the Black Plague. Speaking of infectious control, God instructed Moses to use hyssop oil as a purifying agent. Well, centuries, thousands of years later, we discovered that hyssop oil is a natural antifungal and antibacterial agent. Well, how would Moses or anybody in the day know anything about that? Why would they choose hyssop oil? Unless, of course, God was instructing them to use it because he knew that it was an antibacterial agent. And then one of my favorite ones is that God instructed, remember his instructions on circumcision, the child was supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, is there any significance to the eighth day for circumcision? And the answer is actually there is. Vitamin K reaches its peak in an infant on day eight, which is a necessary agent for blood clotting. (laughs) And so God actually told them, don't circumcise them until the eighth day, because that's when the body is prepared to heal itself through clotting. Wow. So again, the Bible's not a scientific document, but there's there's all these scientific insights that just show there was an author of this book other than man who had no idea of many of these concepts. Jeff, I got one more I can throw in. Yeah. That's out of Leviticus, and it says uh, in chapter 15, and when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water and it shall be clean. There you running go. Running water. Yeah, so not still water. Not still that, water. Yeah. Running water. So there's another cleansing uh, instruction. Mm-hmm. And, and remember, this is prior to uh, mankind knowing anything about bacteria that would rest on skin and on mm-hmm. clothing and so on. Um, you know, there's another one that God talks about the, the life being in the blood. And yet, up until the Civil War, and even after the Civil War, there was a common practice of bloodletting 
uh, basically have it using leeches and instruments to cut a patient in order to let out some blood. You got a headache, Bill? Well, what you need is a good bloodletting. If you've ever been to Fort Snelling in the Twin Cities, there that's an old camp dating back to the Civil War era and stuff, and their infirmary actually has all these bloodletting instruments, sharp devices to cause in, uh, bleeding in their patients. And remember, they didn't clean and, and disinfect these instruments in between these bloodlettings either. So go figure. All right, another category of external evidence is archaeological evidence. Um, there is ample um, um, evidence, findings, uh, both historical and archaeological evidence, that confirm so many things in Scripture, and I just wanted to point out a couple of those. For example, for years, skeptics talked about, oh, this town of Jericho and the marching around. That never happened. Well, in 1990, there was a Time magazine featured article entitled Score One for the Bible, in which it reported on a group of archaeologists that confirmed the walls falling down, the city being taken over uh, in, in in a short amount of time, and actually another archaeologist, Archaeologist Brian Wood found, uh, discovered the date and set the date of the fall of Jericho to match the biblical date. So once again, it proved the narrative in the Bible was accurate. The, the existence of Nineveh. Uh, many critics said there was no city uh, called Nineveh anywhere because there was no evidence for it. Well, along came an Englishman named uh, Rawlinson, and he discovered the entire city of Nineveh. Score another one for Scripture. The existence and destruction of Tyre, which is talked about in Ezekiel 26. Um, many didn't believe that this was a real city, and then it was discovered. The history, the existence and destruction of Babylon. The Hittite people. In Genesis 15, it, it talks about the Hittites. And for centuries, people laughed at the Bible, saying there's no such people as the Hittites. But a few decades ago, the ruins of a city located in present-day Turkey was discovered, which was the main Hittite city. Now, everybody knows there's a people group called the Hittites. The Bible was right again. There was uh, an ossuary found. And if you remember what an ossuary was, it's a, a box where they would, remember, they'd place the body of a deceased Jew into a cave. The body would decay. Then they'd go in again and gather up the bones and put it into an ossuary. Well, they discovered an ossuary with this inscription, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And many people believe that that is James of the Bible, the brother of Jesus. Now, I have to note, there was a special on TV a couple of years ago by James Cameron called The Lost Tomb of Jesus, where some claim that they found the ossuary of Jesus. Jesus rose from the grave. He exited the tomb, the tomb rolled away, and he ascended to heaven. There's no way you're going to find the bones of Jesus. Amen. Jeff Fredorin my guest. We're going to continue our study of the Bible. This is the Bible 201. After a brief break, we'll be right back. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's 
I'm back with Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our study of the Bible. If you are new to the faith, you're going to, I think, find this very fascinating. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for decades, you're going to probably find this fascinating. <laughs> That's the way Jeff works. <laughs> so this is uh, Bible 201. So far, so good, Jeff. Where do we pick up? Well, we're talking about archaeological evidence that supports the history and the descriptions in Scripture. And one of the categories that I wanted to turn to is this people group called Israel. And there is a lot of secular sources out there, universities, historians, Egyptologists, that don't have, that deny even today that there was even a group uh, called the Israelites who ever lived in Egypt. And yet we have actually in Minnesota here, my own state is Minnesota, and we have a local filmmaker called Tim Mahoney. He made a movie called Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, where he outlined a tremendous evidence for a people group called the Israelites in Egypt, uh, even talking about the tomb of Joseph and uh, and their exodus from Egypt and then their their taking of the promised land in later movies that, that he has made. Um, so there's lots of evidence that have been discovered um, recently about this people group called the Israelites. King David. Uh, there are many who say that uh, King David, uh, there was never a kingdom of Israel and that there was no king called David. And it's like, well, the Bible talks about this guy named King David. Is there evidence outside the Bible that there was a king in Israel called King David? And yes, there was. There was a guy by the name of Herschel Shanks, who uh, editor of Biblical, Biblical Archaeological Review. It's hard to say. The monument that he discovered brings to life the biblical text in a dramatic way. It, it gives a, a in this inscription on a on a on a, a pillar in Tel Dan in northern Israel that says basically that King David was the king of Israel. Um, so there are there's lots of archaeological evidence uh, also for the temple, the Temple Mount area. Now, when we talk about the Temple Mount, I have to bring up something that happened a few years back at the end of the Obama administration. The UN voted on a resolution basically stating that the Temple Mount and the Western Wall area of downtown Jerusalem has no historic connection to the Jewish people. Okay? So the UN passed a resolution. This resolution actually passed uh, by a vote of 24 to 6 that the Jewish people have no historical connection to the Temple Mount or the Western Wall area. Now, remember, the Bible states that the Jews, the city of David, have been there for several, for, since the time of King David, uh, and even before, and that they built not one, but two temples on this Temple Mount. So this is a pretty dramatic kind of statement coming from the UN, right? And the United States, by the way, could have vetoed this resolution, and they didn't, to our shame, I would say. Um, in fact, Net Benjamin Netanyahu, who was the president of Israel at the time, said the day after this resolution passed, saying that the Jews have no connection to the Temple Mount is like saying that the Chinese have no connection to the Great Wall of China. I mean, it's just obvious. Um, there's actually massive amounts of evidence that there was a temple, a Jewish temple, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It, remember when Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another? Mm -hmm. Well, if you go to the Temple Mount today, there are actually piles of stones, giant stones that made up the temple that were thrown off the Temple Mount and are lying in piles on the side of the Temple Mount. I've been there. I've seen them. I've taken pictures of these piles of stone. And one of these stones has an inscription on it. They found this in 1967, a large 
stone was found with an inscription, and I'm not going to try to say it in Hebrew, but it says, the place for blowing the shofar. Well, who blew the shofar? The priests would blow the shofar at that spot on the corner of the temple for all the city to hear, for, to, uh, to tell them about work and feasts and festivals and, and so on. And there's a, there's a stone that actually says, this is where you stand to blow the shofar. There's, there are, bottom line, there's no historical fact. There's no archaeological discovery. There's no scientific find that has ever disproven anything in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. Isn't and, that amazing? And nor will there ever be. And nor will there ever be. Exactly. Uh, so most of these that I've just walked through are kind of Old Testament related. I thought I'd talk about the New Testament a little because the New Testament is really for Christians. This is a, a, a the account of Jesus, his birth, his life, his teaching, his death, and of course, his resurrection. So whether or not we can trust what the Bible says, that it is historically accurate, is a critical issue. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit, the Bible is the most attacked book on the planet by far. In fact, there's a guy, a couple, here's a couple critic comments. A guy by the name of Bart Ehrman said this, the stories in the New Testament were changed with what would strike us today as reckless abandoned. They were modified, amplified, and embellished, and sometimes just made up. Hmm. Wrong, Bart. Well, we have to decide, right? Let's look at the evidence. A woman by the name of Risa Aslan said this, the New Testament Gospels are not and were never meant to be an historical documentation of Jesus' life. Really? Well, then what were they meant to be, if not an historical account of the man who came from heaven called Jesus? The first place I want to go in thinking about this is extra-biblical sources of history that confirm what is written in the New Testament. Okay, so if, if you're not going to believe that the Bible is the Word of God and the New Testament was written by men inspired by God, well, at least is the history that they describe in the Bible true and accurate according to other historians of the day. You see what I'm saying? All right. So there are many. There's a guy by the name of Jophesus, who is a first century historian who talks about the person of Jesus, John the Baptist, James. He refers to the Roman empires at the time and confirms many of the accounts in the Gospels and in Luke and confirms many of the aspects of the New Testament. There's an historian called uh, Serapin. And he was a Syrian that was imprisoned, and he wrote some letters in 70 AD, and he talks about the death of Socrates, comparing it to the death of Christ with complete accuracy to the biblical description of Christ's death. Uh, Tacitus wrote in his final work, Annals, and he refers to Jesus and Pontius Pilate, Jesus' execution, the existence of early Christians in Rome, and so on, so on confirming the biblical narrative in the New Testament. Pliny the Younger talks about that Jesus was worshipped and that believers were persecuted in, in the early 1st and 2nd centuries. Clement of Rome uh, talks about that the apostles received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ was sent from God, and so then Christ sent uh, so then Christ is from God and that the apostles are from Christ. There's a website called Reasons for Jesus that lists off many extra-biblical historical narratives that confirm what is written in the New Testament. 
a guy by the name of Sir William Ramsey said this of the book of Acts, which is kind of the history of the early church. He says, quote, He has completed the most extensive study so far of the data recorded in Acts and concedes Luke is an historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. The book of Acts most readily lends itself to archaeological investigation because it contains so many references to customs, places, and events of the day. For example, it was asserted that Luke was wrong about the events surrounding Jesus' birth, and critic maintains that there was no census at that time. But in fact, archaeological discoveries have upheld all of the truths of Luke's account of a census being taken at that time. Can we trust the New Testament stories? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Yes, we can. Um, They have been confirmed over and over through history and archaeology. And um, there's one more category that we need to talk about. Now, this one's a little more intangible of a reason. Uh, it, It can't be proved in any way. But it's the evidence of changed lives. There's no other book that has changed more lives over the last 2,000 years than the words of the New Testament. And uh, it's life-giving words that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. And millions upon millions upon millions of people will give their personal testimonies that says, I believed what was written in that book. I believed in Jesus Christ. He became my Lord and Savior. And my life has never been the same. So the evidence of changed lives. So why did we go through all that? It's, it's one of these things that I don't think, I think the attacks on the Bible uh, have, have kind of kowtowed Christians into saying, well, I don't know if I can believe what's written in this book, or I don't know if I'm going to take everything literally or not. And uh, it's fascinating in my classes how many times I get questions like, well, Jeff, do you think the donkey really talked? There's a story in the Old Testament where this donkey mm-hmm. talks, right? And I said, well, the Bible says that the donkey talks. Well, how can we know the donkey talks? Well, the Bible says that God opened the mouth and the donkey talked. So I don't know if I really believe that that, that could happen. And it's like, well, maybe then you might not believe that Jesus turned water into wine. And maybe you don't believe that Jesus healed the blind. Maybe then you won't believe in the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe in that miracle, then there's no Christianity. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to pick and choose which parts of the Bible are true and which parts of the Bible are not true, well, how are you going to decide that? And I think we can trust the words, every word, understanding that we need to have proper interpretation and proper understanding of, of some of these stories, but we can trust the Word of God is reliable and true. There are many attacks on Scripture um, that we've talked about that the Bible is full of contradictions, that uh, the Bible is against science, that it's a religious book, and so if you have a scientific, analytical mind, uh, you're not going to believe the stories of the Bible. And, and we just talked about some of the scientific truths that are in the Bible. It's like, wow. And uh, there's nothing in Scripture that contradicts science, by the way. 
Um, you know, about the only thing that you can mention is evolution. There are many who believe in the theory of evolution. God specifically says that he made all the creatures. So, you know, so there's a difference there. Um, but uh, and I don't want to go down the evolutionary path. Uh, there are things like, there was there a literal Adam? Adam is called a literal person in Scripture. I believe it's very important that you have a literal garden with a literal tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a literal command not to eat the tree, a literal temptation, right, and a literal fall. Because if that didn't happen, there is no need for a literal redeemer to come and redeem mankind from his sins. There are many, even in Christianity today, who are discounting the fact that Adam was a real person. They believe in some kind of model where you don't need a literal Adam. Even in the New Testament, Adam is listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Why would God put a fictitious character into the genealogy of Christ? And Adam is listed five, six, seven times more in the New Testament, always as a literal person. So, you know, can we trust what's in the Bible? Yes. And you just have to decide if it really happened. Did Jesus really rise from the grave or not? Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that God can do those kind of miracles? I believe he can. I really hope I get to meet the talking donkey in heaven. (laughs) I'm just saying. I don't think donkeys go to heaven, but, okay, but you know, maybe saying, we'll work out something. Maybe there's know. something we can work out. Let me take a little break. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're continuing our uh, study of uh, Bible foundations, and we're in uh, the Bible 201. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're continuing our study of the Bible, my favorite topic of all time, Jeff's too, and we're uh, in Bible 201. And Jeff, was the Bible passed down from generation to generation? Yeah, so this is one of the common uh, critics used to describe that, oh, the Bible is unreliable because it was passed down from generation to generation, and it's kind of like the What's the train game where you say one thing to another person to another person yeah. and you end up with something totally different? Well, if that was true, you, you wouldn't be able to trust the Bible, but it's not true of neither the Old Testament or the New Testament. So the Old Testament, we know that God gave the, the books of the Old Testament to the Jewish people who very carefully would write down the book and then copy it over and over. I've actually watched Jewish scribes copy the book of Isaiah from one scroll to another, and uh, it's a time-consuming process. Uh, It was not verbally passed down over the centuries. It was carefully documented and copied over the centuries. Well, how do we know this? One of the most powerful discoveries of the last hundred years related to the Bible was the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're pointing right at me. That's right. That It is. In 1947, uh, some uh, Bedouin kids went into some caves and they found, found these 
clay pots with scrolls in them. Well, these scrolls, many of them were books of the Bible, dated a thousand years earlier than the oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament we had before then. So if you have an old manuscript dated to um, after uh, the birth of Christ, and you then have you find another manuscript of Isaiah or whatever, and it's a thousand years earlier, mm-hmm. and you compare the two, do you think you should find some differences between those two copies a thousand years apart? You would think there'd be corruption. You would think yep. there would be corruption that entered into the text. Yep. You know what they found? They found virtually no differences between these manuscripts a thousand years apart. So what can we conclude? This is a long study, but what we can conclude is that what we have in the Hebrew was reliably copied from one copy to another. And so we can trust. Now, we don't have the original scroll of Isaiah, right? But we have these copies of it that we can trust were reliably copied. The bottom line is, is they weren't passed down verbally over the generations. They were reliably copied. Same with the New Testament. Every single book of the New Testament was written within the lifetime of people that would have been eyewitnesses to the events. You see that? Mm -hmm. These were not passed down generation after generation, but they were written down and recorded within decades of Christ's death. Um, so this they, is just... They would have no credibility because people would call it out. And so that, that's not what happened. 1 Corinthians fifteen six says this. You're absolutely right. Paul says, After that, he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that same time, most of whom are still living. Yeah. So if you were going to write something down that said Jesus rose from the dead, there's a whole bunch of people that could have called you out that said, Hey, what you're writing is wrong. So if Jesus didn't rise from the Correct. dead. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So it was not handed down from generation to generation. One of the common kind of questions is, well, how did we get the books of the Bible? This is called the process of the canon. And the bottom line is, is that this is a complicated process. And and people say, well, did God decide what books were in the Bible or did men decide what books were in the Bible? And the answer is kind of yes and yes. Um, most of the early letters of the New Testament were being used by the church as Scripture before any canon list was developed. Um, and these canon lists were developed until actually the first full canon wasn't developed until 367 A.D. But before that, in, in the second century, there was lists of most of the New Testament that most of the church were using as Scriptures. What happened was there were some false gospels that started to come upon the scene, the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Philip. And the church says, well, wait a minute, we've got these counterfeits coming in. Let's create a list of the books that we have been using as Scripture. And that is really where we got the canon. So these past, these these letters were being used as Scripture. And in fact, Peter, in 2 Peter 3, says this, He, Paul, writes the same way in all of his letters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. So even Peter calls Paul's writing scripture, Um, and that was 50 AD. Next question. 
How did we get the English Bible? Well, remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. But for about a thousand years, most Christian scholars studied the Bible in Latin. So the Hebrew and Greek were translated into Latin, and that was called the Latin Vulgate. It wasn't until Wycliffe in the 1300s translated the first English Bible, then Tyndale in the late 1400s, and then the King James Version in the 1600s. And then, of course, we have the revised version in the American Standard and the New American Standard, the NIV in, the ni- in 1978, and so on. Um, as we have gained more manuscript evidence... Uh, we have gotten better, I think, at translating the Hebrew and the Greek into English. So I have to point out one thing, and some people might not like what I'm about to say, but there is some other category of the Bible called paraphrases, all right? So a paraphrase is not a translation, So I'm going to pick on two paraphrases. I'm not going to pick on them. I'm just going to define them. They need to be defined properly because every time you go to some website or whatever and that lists out all the different translations of the Bible, the the message and the living Bible, which came from 1971, are listed as translations of the Bible, and they are not. A translation is taking the Hebrew and the Greek and translating that language into English, okay? Okay. A paraphrase is someone reading the English Bible and restating it verse by verse in a more in a and hopefully in a way that uses different language to try to communicate the same idea. That's a paraphrase. So a paraphrase is not a translation. So the intent is good. The intent can be good. It can be viewed, however, more like a commentary, mm-hmm. if you will, on the Bible than a translation. And I just wish all these websites would list them out as paraphrases and not as translations. Mm-hmm. One of my little pet peeves. So which interpretation of the Bible today is the best? Oh my goodness, you want to get some emails? Let's, uh, let's talk about this, for example, for a moment. Um, there's actually two main ways that you can decide to translate the Bible. There is kind of a word for word and a thought for thought. And so you say, well, which one is better? Well, both are valid approaches to interpreting the word. And I I think the easiest way is to do this with an example. Say there's an idiom that says he lost his head. You know that, that that means that someone got angry or got mad or whatever, right? He blew his top. He lost his head. Well, a word-for-word translation like the NASB, the New American Standard, would translate that as, he lost his head. The NIV, which is more of a thought-for-thought translation, would probably translate that as, he got very mad. Now, if you didn't understand that idiom from the first century, the NIV would be more understandable. But the NASB, the more word-for-word, would be more technically more accurate, I guess, more precise. Uh, but both are being translated in a way to try to help their reader understand a language that they don't. So you have to translate it into English for us. Um, one note for all of you King James-only folks out there, I've had these discussions. Don't email Bill, please. Um, I have had this discussion with many folks. Uh, one person once said, uh, well, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? And and Jesus didn't speak in King James English, all right? He spoke you know, Aramaic, Greek, 
Um, so this is just a translation. It's one of many translations. I have compared many verses of many different translations. And you know what? There's actually not that great of difference between them. There are some discrepancies between some manuscripts say one thing, some manuscripts say another, and so interpreters have to decide which way they're going to translate it. Uh, And in fact, my Bible that I read most days is the NIV Study Bible from 1984, and it does a very good job of footnoting when there is a discrepancy in some of the oldest Greek manuscripts. And so it will point that out to you. Hmm. Um, So last question, is your English Bible infallible? This is one of those questions that many statement of faith will say infallible. And I say, well, no, your English Bible is a translation into English done by men. And most statement of faith will say the Bible in its original manuscripts is infallible. And I would agree with something like that. Mm. Wonderful study, Jeff. I can't wait for uh, the Bible 301. I'm getting it right now. We're going to resume that in a couple of weeks. Thank you for being here as always. You bet. Jeff Verdorn has been my guest as we continue our study of the foundations of the Bible. When we put this online, you can find it by typing in Bible, Bible, because that's going to get you to the foundation work that we're covering. That's our show for today. Thank you. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.